14. Uh, This morning, uh, Pastor Jeff led us through Isaiah 5. Tonight, uh, we're in Ezekiel, a couple of uh, more obscure Old Testament books, uh, but certainly a story tonight uh, that I trust will encourage you and uh, resonate with you as it has uh, for me. So Ezekiel 37, beginning at verse 1, we'll read through verse 14, the valley of dry bones. This is God's own word. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound. And behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken. And I will do it, declares the Lord. Let's ask his blessing. Father, now what we know not teach us, and what we have not give us, and what we are not make us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, tonight's passage... The Valley of Dry Bones records one of the more well-known, I think, and famous and memorable Old Testament stories, a story that we've heard uh, probably many times that we remember hearing in Sunday school in one of the more obscure Old Testament books, the book of Ezekiel. Boys and girls, Ezekiel was one of God's prophets. And uh, as a prophet, he was called by God to speak for God to the people of God. Uh, But to be a prophet in the Old Testament was anything but easy. If the ancient Near East kept a record of the top ten 
uh, difficult, challenging vocations, I have no doubt in my mind that prophet would probably be at the top of the list. It was not an easy thing to be a prophet. Uh, to, to go to an obstinate people, a stiff-necked people, a rebellious people, people that had no interest in, in hearing the message nor the messenger that God had sent. And yet that was Ezekiel's call. And not only was he a prophet to a, a difficult people, but he was a prophet in a difficult time. A time of darkness, a time of hopelessness, a time of exile. Here, the Israelites were living in a foreign land. They had been replaced uh, out of their own home. Jerusalem, their beloved city, I don't know if we really get just how important this city was to the Jews. Uh, God had responded to their rebellious hearts, their refusal to bow the knee, and He had in His providence sent the Babylonians who destroyed Jerusalem. And so here the Israelites were, far away, cut off from God, and living without hope. Probably wondering, have we gone over the cliff? Have we gone beyond the, 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 the line of return? And it's into, into that situation, into that context, where Israel's whole identity is turned upside down, where God takes Ezekiel into this vision to see this valley and asks the question, can these bones live? Can these bones live? Now, I don't know about your situation, most of you tonight, but perhaps you are here and you are feeling a bit like Israel. Perhaps you've committed that same sin for the thousandth time and you're starting to wonder if God is going to give up on you if you've sinned so many times and you've sinned against Dre so many times that perhaps you are far too gone. Your heart is too hard and you're here tonight and you're struggling to find hope. And it's to you and it's to me that God asks, can these bones live? Just two main uh, points tonight as we work our way through the text, beginning with that reality, a hopeless picture. First of all, a hopeless picture. Could God make these bones live again? And would He? Israel's condition is vividly illustrated uh, by this vision of a valley that is covered, blanketed with dry bones. And you've heard the saying, a, a, a picture is worth a thousand words. That's so true. Here, a picture is worth ten thousands of words. Uh, God really didn't have to explain to Ezekiel what this picture meant. He didn't have to, uh, co to complete the analogy. Ezekiel the prophet would have known exactly what God was trying to convey. This valley of dry bones represented Israel. Death and, and spiritual lifelessness. What happens to us when, when, when we continue in sin? 
When we continue in sin and when we don't locate sin, identify sin, grieve sin, turn from sin uh, to God in repentance, when we continue to, to deny uh, the, the Word of God and ignore the Spirit's work in our lives, and we continue to just become more and more hardened and calcified in our sin, and we become dry, don't we? We become numb. We become as David became when he was living this way. He said, for when I kept silent, speaking in Psalm 32, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For a day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. You've experienced this before. I have. You become dried up. Living in sin treasuring sin, desiring sin. Yes, going through uh, the right motions, doing the right things, attending church, saying the prayers that I was supposed to say, reading my Bible occasionally, outwardly looking fine, and yet inwardly dry. Dry. No doubt here, for, for the Israelites, they still had the externals. They had the forms. They had the offerings. They had the sacrifices. They brought God their rituals. They offered to God their prayers. Yet inside, they were spiritually hollow. It was dead orthodoxy before that was even a term that we use. The sort of thing that Jesus described when he was faced with the Pharisees of his day who externally looked pretty impressive and had quite good credentials, outwardly speaking. They knew their Old Testaments very, very well. And yet Jesus, quoting Isaiah, says of these Pharisees, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Their heart is far from me. They had, you see, the, the appearances of being alive to some degree, but inside they were dead. They were like whitewashed tombs, as Jesus said about the Pharisees. And, and something similar is going on here in Ezekiel 37. Uh, if we could take an x-ray, what we see in the heart of the Israelite is dryness. You see, it's possible to look alive by coming to church and singing the songs while in reality being as dead or dry as these bones. If you think about it, the world in which we live is in the very same predicament. There is a sense in which the world is alive, yet dead. Alive, on the one hand, and dead on the other, outside of the rescue of God and Jesus Christ. This is how Paul describes the unbeliever and how he describes us before we were saved, before we were born again. He, he reminds us, and you, he says in Ephesians 2 verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And so you were dead while walking. 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom all we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's what you were. That's who you were. That's who I was. I used to be physically alive, but spiritually dead. And if you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ by faith alone, you're physically obviously alive, and yet you're spiritually cut off from God. You're spiritually lifeless. C.S. Lewis, in The Weight of Glory, brings this reality out. He brings this eternal reality out by, by reminding us that everyone that we encounter, everyone that we engage in and meet with, will live forever. And, and, and Lewis said, that ought to change the way that we, that we look at people. Not in a condescending way, but in, a, in an urgent way, in a loving way, in a merciful way. Some of you may remember Lewis at one time writing this. He says, It is a serious thing to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else, a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are, he says, in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them, he says, that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. And then he says this, this is striking, listen, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortals, but it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Lewis's point is that, is that everyone will live forever either in heaven with Christ or in hell apart from God. And there is an urgency, but... But that's the subtleties, right, of, of, of seeing people walking around and physically healthy and alive with vitality and youth and vigor, and yet outside of Christ there is nothing. There's, there's deadness. Israel was in a, a, a condition that is described here vividly in this, in this picture of dry bones. Their sin and God's response to their sin rendered them hopeless. In fact, look with me in your Bible at verse 11. Jump down there for a moment. Verse 11, then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, so, so, so again, the, the bones, as if they're talking, say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost and we are indeed cut off. They were hopeless. They were cut off. This is uh, the outlook of Israel at this particular time. This is the reality for those outside of Christ in the world. While they might not recognize it, while they might not acknowledge it, apart from God, they are without hope in this world. 
But perhaps what you struggle with tonight is what I have struggled with at various times in my life, and that is sort of what what we remember reading about Martin Luther struggling with uh, before and leading up to the time of the Reformation in the 16th century. Uh, This this sort of hopelessness uh, about ever attaining enough righteousness through his own merits and through his own obedience. If you've read the the biography and and story of Martin Luther, you'll remember that that if anyone tried to earn his way to God, it was Luther. If anyone labored, uh, it was Luther to try to earn his salvation, to try to attain to a certain level of righteousness. And, And he would work, and he would work, and he would labor. And he would confess his sins for an hour, two hours, three hours, four hours, six hours. And then on the way back to his room, I mean, really, how much sin could there have been where he was, right? And on the way back to his room, man, I I had a thought again. Luther understood that you you could take him out of the world and put him in a monastery and he'd still have his heart. And he'd go back and he'd confess all over again. And it rendered him hopeless. Luther understood one thing pre-Reformation. He understood the righteous requirement of God. He understood the the, the great holiness of God. You know, we've we've shrunk him down today in our culture, but Luther understood, no, no, he is holy, and he demands perfection. And Luther started to not only become hopeless, but bitter, saying things like, I hate this God. Because Luther was convinced that that God was commanding him to do something that Luther could never attain to. Just just playing games. Maybe that's how you feel tonight. Playing games with you. Be holy. Be perfect. Achieve righteousness. Okay, externally, I'm okay. Outwardly, I can put on a decent show for a little while. Maybe ten minutes. But I know inside what's happening. This battle that is raging out of my own heart. Luther was hopeless until he understood that the righteousness that God required of him is the righteousness that God has provided for him in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But he was hopeless. Interestingly, not because he had, he had sinned so erroneously, not because he had rebelled so viciously, but, but he was hopeless because he was trying so hard to, to keep the law. Maybe that describes you tonight. Maybe you're hopeless because you've fallen hard. You're the prodigal son, the younger brother who has rebelled and ran far away. And you've taken all this uh, embarrassment of riches and, 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 and blessings. We heard about this morning, the golden opportunity. I mean, if anyone has gotten a golden opportunity, it's me. It's us, right? Catechized and, and trained, many of us. Yeah, maybe you're here tonight and you're hopeless because you have, you have absolutely squandered all of those gifts. And you're wondering, is there, any, is there any hope for me? Or maybe you're more like the elder brother. Maybe you're the Pharisee. Maybe you're the one that thinks, you know what, I've done my best. But maybe deep down inside, you're hopeless too because you recognize that your best is not enough. Your best is not the righteousness which God requires. 
It's into this hopelessness that God then turns to Ezekiel and says to this prophet, can these bones live? Got to wonder what Ezekiel was feeling at, at this time. I mean, I, I think he, he's probably getting what's happening. This is a picture of Israel. Can these bones live, O prophet? What do you want me to do? What am I supposed to do? Do you know the success rate for talking to dead people? I mean, you, you, can, you can plead, you can, you can weep, you can yell, you can scream, you can do whatever you want. But if you go to a, a grave and you try to talk to a dead person and make the dead person come to life, you don't have that kind of power. You're powerless. And that's, I think, a sense in which we ought to be feeling tonight. And, and certainly Ezekiel must have been feeling for his own ministry just an absolute powerlessness. It's not that Israel just needed you know, just a little extra motivation, just a pep talk from the prophet. These people were dead. Well, I love Ezekiel's response to God's question. The question is, can these bones live? And, and Ezekiel answers, Oh, Lord God, you know. Oh, Lord God, you know. Consider with me then, secondly, the stunning result. The stunning result which follows the hopeless picture uh, beginning with first the method that God uses, and what method does He use? What method is He pleased to use, not only here but today? His Word. Verse 4 prophesy over these bones. Say to them, speak to them, right? Speak my word to these bones. Friends, the power is in the Word of God not in the messenger. This Wednesday is Reformation Day, and we are right to celebrate it. We are right to remember the likes of Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and others who the Lord powerfully used to bring about this great return to the Scriptures, the return to the authority of the Word of God and the doctrines of grace and justification by faith alone in Christ alone. But how did the Reformation actually come about? It was the Word of God. It was a return to the Word of God, but it was the Word of God that brought about the Reformation, brought about revival within the church. Luther himself testified of this. While he was spending time with his buddies, the Word of God was spreading. The Word of God was expanding. It was the Word that was simply doing its work because it's the Word of God. One of my favorite uh, quotes of Charles Spurgeon is when he asks this question, how do I defend the Bible? How do I defend the Bible, Spurgeon said, the prince of preachers? His answer, the same way I would defend a lion. I simply open the cage and I let him out. I simply open the cage and let him out. That's how you defend the Word of God. 
You let the word do its work. Now notice, Ezekiel did as he was commanded, verse 7. He didn't, he didn't uh, change the message. He didn't water the message down. He preached the message that God had given him to preach. But it wasn't Ezekiel's ability. That's a good reminder. That's a good word tonight for Harvest Church. What the church needs, what Harvest needs, what, what the church plant needs, and what all churches need are not fancier programs or entertaining messengers, but clear, practical, faithful teaching of the Word of God, which is able to make us wise unto salvation. We need the Word of God unleashed. We need the Word of God preached and taught. Parents, God loves using means, but ultimately you and I are powerless to cause our children to be born again, aren't we? And we feel that, I hope. We feel that powerlessness. We can do all the right things, at least we try to do all the right things. We give them the right schools and the right programs and the right education, but at the end of the day, only God can raise the dead. And so you and I are to be faithful to bring the Word of God to them, bring the Gospel to our children over and over and over again. Wash them in the water of the Word. Sunday school teachers... What a great presentation today, by the way, uh, from Pastor Wayne on, on the scope and sequence of Sunday school and why it is uh, that we do what we do here at Harvest Church. Sunday school teachers, you don't have the ability to bring about the transformation that I know that you desire, but the Word of God does. Elders, as you minister to your sheep, as you counsel them through difficult situations and you, you're on your way to a visit and you've got a knot in your stomach because you don't know what to say. It's the Word of God which is able to, to accomplish what you and I could never accomplish on our own. See, this is exactly what happens here in this a beautiful story in verses 7 through 10. Ezekiel does what God tells him to do and what happens Life, formation of, of life, revival of life. These, these bones come together, a rattling occurs, bone to its bone. Eventually, life itself. Verse 10, so I prophesied as He commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Uh, we are saved individually, but we are saved into the church. As a great army of followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says you are dead. You are walking dead people in, verse, in Ephesians chapter 2. But he follows it up with this. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is a picture, isn't it, of, of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in causing us to be born again. The method He uses then and now is the preaching of the Word, the teaching of the Word of God, the reading of the Word of God as we allow it to, to wash over us and to, to bring about change and transformation. The Word of God changes us. What an invitation to, to read it. 
to read it and study it and meditate upon it. And to, and to run here to church to sit under the preaching of the Word and to get ourselves in a, in a small group or a Bible study or a time of fellowship where we're encouraging each other in the Word of God. Well, what message does this story send Ezekiel and Israel and us well, we can't ignore the fact that it communicates the incredible power of God. That God is able to do all things. There is nothing that God cannot do. But perhaps the more pressing question for us is this. Not can He cause these bones to live because He's God and boys and girls, He created all things and He can do all things. I think the more pressing question and, and practical question is will he? There's a difference. I think we know that, that he can do all things but what I think we struggle with, what I struggle with often is does he desire to? What is, what is the heart of, of our Father? What is the disposition of our God? I mean, why would God, who is holy, choose to revive this rebellious, washed-up nation who spit in God's gracious face more times than they could count? And why would God do that for us? who not only sin against His law, but who sin against His grace over and over again. Why would God do that? Would God do that? Is God delighted to, to, to revive dead bones? The answer that He gives here in Ezekiel 37 is that not only is He able, but He is willing. Not only is he able, but he is delighted. He is delighted to do so. And, and why, why would he do that? Why does it delight the heart of God to revive dead bones who have rebelled against him? Well, there's a few times in the passage where I think that question is answered. Verses 6 and then down 11, 12, 13, 14. The answer is this. The reason He loves to revive us is because He wants to be known. The end of verse 6, and you shall know that I am the Lord. He wants to be known. He revives dead people because of His gracious and generous character, but because He wants to be known and He wants to be he wants to be enjoyed. He wants to be treasured. He wants us to delight in Him. He wants us to enjoy Him forever and in a daily sense. And we think, and I know that the fifth grade class this morning talked about this in class because we had a discussion at the table today. Isn't that, uh, isn't that self-centered on God's behalf for God to, to want to do this so that He might be known? Isn't that sort of self-centered? And the answer is, God is the most God-centered being in all the universe. And that's why He does all the things that He does. Because He is bent on giving Himself glory. 
And he wants to be known. He wants to be loved. This is John Calvin's favorite verse, actually. Uh, Pastor Wayne preached on it last Sunday evening. John 17, verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So so God is able to do all things, but he loves doing all things. He loves reviving dead people because he wants to be known. And where, where is God most clearly known? Where has he revealed himself most, most specifically? The answer is in the cross where Jesus entered the valley of death for sinners like Israel and Adam and us who had all of these advantages and yet who've forfeited the right to know him, yet because Jesus went all the way to death, because he was crucified for our sins, he emerged from the grave with a resurrected body through the power of the life-giving spirit, which he gives freely to all who trust in him. The same spirit which raised Christ from the dead dwells in us here tonight as we cling to Jesus Christ by faith. Now that's, that's good news. That's good news because we live in a world of not good news. We live in a world of chaos. We live in a world of hopelessness. We live in a world whose message is, well, pick yourself up. Try harder. Do better. Maybe you're here tonight and you're staring a hopeless situation squarely in the face. Maybe for you tonight it's a marriage that has lost all of its vitality. And you're not even sure exactly what's happened, but you know that it's sin. And somewhere along the way, sin has just taken a hold of your marriage so that you you don't even know where to start. And you're hopeless tonight because of your own sin or because of the sin of your spouse, you're at the edge of just giving up. And God would ask you tonight, can these bones live? Or maybe it's a besetting sin. And you fought, you fought, you fought, and you keep losing. No matter how hard you try, it doesn't seem to do any good. And you're hopeless. Can these bones live? And what Ezekiel 37 wants to communicate to us tonight is this. Not only the ability of God to do all things, to restore your marriage, to give you victory over besetting sin, but also his desire, his love for you, his generous heart towards you, his disposition of of patience with you, his desire to, to see you reconciled, to see you walking by faith in victory. We've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
And the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, is inviting you and inviting me tonight to to not look at ourselves, not look at our self-reformation efforts, but to look to His heart. To look to His power. He is able to do all things, being Almighty God, willing, being our Heavenly Father. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, I'll close here, to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Our hope is in Christ whose word is sufficient. That word is above all earthly powers. So let us wash ourselves again in the word of life. In Jesus, amen. Uh, Father, would you do in us and for us and through us what we could never ever do for ourselves? Would you open the eyes of the blind? Would you bring life out of death? Would you send hope into hopeless situations? Would you provide strength in our weakness? Would you raise up the dead? Would you send forth your word and power? Be merciful to us, O God, for we are helpless sinners. Do above and beyond what we could even ask or imagine because it is your heart to do so. Make us then to know you, to know our weaknesses, to know your strength, to know you as our greatest pleasure, to cherish you as our sweetest delight. For Jesus' sake, And in his name, amen.